Well, the story that we're looking at here in Nehemiah, it's the story of Israel. And what has happened is God has brought Israel, created a great nation uh, in Egypt, in captivity, they became a great nation. And he brought that great nation out through the wilderness. It was a very difficult time. It ended up being 40 years, brought them into the land, and then the they grew into a great nation there. And what happened was they decided over and over and over again to just go their own way, to say, you know, thank you very much, God, but we're going to take it from here. Now, that uh, happens to us all the time. We just sort of feel like, okay, I've got these things going with God, but I really just want to kind of go my own way. Now, in their case, it just didn't work out very well. The northern tribes ended up uh, fighting against the Assyrians and losing. Uh, they were taken into captivity up into Assyria and really never heard from again. We don't really know for sure where they are. They're just the definition of who they were uh, sort of became lost. And so Israel then, the word Israel, came to refer really to those southern tribes that were left to Judah, uh, Benjamin. But they did the same thing as their brothers and sisters in the north, and they decided to go their own way, and that didn't work out too well for them either. Uh, they ended up fighting against the Babylonians and being taken into captivity there. And that's what we looked at this past couple of weeks, that the best and the brightest of what their culture had to offer was taken away from them or taken away from the, the land where they were rooted in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, and, and they were taken into Babylon. And that's who Nehemiah is. He's one of those that had been taken away. And the story before this is the book of Ezra. And that's the story of God beginning to bring them back beginning to give life back into who they are as a culture, uh, bringing them out of that culture of captivity in Babylon and, and giving them back what they had before, a, a second, uh, a new start in, in the land. And that started with the temple being rebuilt. And, and so how the book of Nehemiah starts is Nehemiah, some people from that area of Jerusalem where the temple had been built, had come back to Babylon, and he inquires. He says, hey, how's it going here? We have this start, right? We got something good had started. The temple had started to be built. How's things going? And he hears the report from them, and they say, well, it's not going very well. Uh, our people are oppressed. They're afraid. They're scared. Death is hanging over them. It's not a good situation. They're really just looked down upon. Uh, it says that they looked at them, that, that what they were suffering under was that every time people looked at them, they just looked at them with disappointment. And when Nehemiah heard it, there was something inside of him that just broke. And it says he just began to weep, mourning and weeping. And it wasn't something that he purposed to do. It was just a response. He just there was something inside of him that just started to break down and he started to cry. Now, for a lot of us, when we 
we have those encounters when something strikes us and we just can feel that sense. Maybe we just, we do cry. Maybe we can feel it starting to come on. Uh, oftentimes we just sort of push that off or try and get away from that feeling. But Nehemiah didn't do that. He just grabbed a hold of it and dragged it out for 40 days and 40 nights. He just embraced it. And there's something important in that to understand. It's not that he was embracing the morning. He was embracing that connection that he felt with someone else. And at that point, the only way to embrace that was to embrace it through mourning, through sadness. That's where it was at that moment. Sometimes we don't want to embrace the sadness, but if we don't embrace the sadness, we're not going to be able to embrace the people that we want to connect to. Connecting with people is always going to involve embracing sadness at different points. And it's not like, oh, I want my life to just be about sadness, but we have no choice when things aren't going well. When we pull away from the sadness, a lot of times, we're we're really just pulling away from people. And the chapter one ends with saying, now I was the cupbearer of the king. It ends with a statement that here's the situation. There's sadness. There's things that are going wrong with people that I love. But there's something here. There's a, a opportunity that's here. I'm placed in such a place that maybe... God might enable me to do something to help. And in fact, maybe God is already down that path. Maybe God has brought me to the place where I'm at, Nehemiah is thinking, to where I might actually be able to be a part of seeing this change. And that's something we need to consider too. Instead of throwing sadness off, we can't throw it off because we'd be throwing people off embrace the sadness to embrace the people, but but then embrace it with a hope of how might God use me to change this situation? What might God have already done that in including me into this, how might I be a part of the plan that God has? That's what Nehemiah was grappling with. He wasn't just mourning for 40 days and 40 nights because you see here in this story, when the king says, what is your request? He has boom, 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 a plan going. So the things that he was going through during this time was embracing his people, continue persisting in embracing the people that he loves and cares for by embracing the sorrow of the situation that they're in, but he didn't just embrace the sorrow and stay there. He looked to God to see, God, is there any hope of getting out of this? And if there is any hope, can I participate in that hope? And then ask, is there anything that God has already done that would enable me, that he has already put into place for me to be able to participate in this sadness being lifted off for all of us? Now, this is where the encounter with the king begins, and here's how it says. It says, it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, Artaxerxes, is uh, his father was Xerxes. That's where Artaxerxes is sort of named after his 
father. His father was king, and his father and his older brother, who would have been king uh, next, uh, they were both murdered, violently murdered by the guy who was the, I think, the captain of the bodyguards. So the people that were the closest to the king, his father and his older brother, who were tasked with who were trusted and tasked with protecting them, ended up murdering both of them. And Artaxerxes, you know, when he found out about it, I don't know, I didn't dig into it enough. I don't know if he killed the guy or if he had the guy killed, but the guy was killed and not just the guy, but his entire family was murdered. So uh, this guy is uh, one, He's uh, not necessarily an uh, innocent guy. He has, he's a ruthless guy in some senses. The Xerxes, his father, is the Persian king that is talked about in the movie 300 in the war against Greek. And it has a good depiction of probably what the guy was like. We're not talking about good people in charge. It's not that Artaxerxes was good, but there is something that Artaxerxes had that maybe could help him relate to, or maybe softened his heart. We don't know what softened his heart. It was probably just a miracle, but he had pain in his life. You can't have gone through the murder of your father and the murder of your older brother without having pain in your life. And it wasn't something that he went... Maybe you could say, well, he gained opportunity from that. I don't know. You could say a lot of things. But having your father, having your brother murdered, there's a lot of pain in that. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. He's probably, at least in the world and so far as this area, you know, all the way through to, you know, Egypt, this large area, he's the most powerful, the wealthiest the person who has the most opportunity, and yet he has a lot of pain. He has pain. It says, there was wine before him, and I took the wine and gave it to the king. In other words, he's in a, what that cupbearer means is he's in a position of trust. He's so close to the king that he can actually hand something. His job is to like hand something from here to here. Now that trust had already been violated for Artaxerxes with his father, Xerxes, and that the person who he had trusted, who had that kind of access to him, ended up murdering his father and murdering his brother. And so implicit in what's going on here, in order to have someone that close to you, when you have someone close to you in your life, you're embracing a risk. And so there's a risk that's there, and there's a certain amount of trust that Nehemiah isn't going to be a plot of murdering him like the person who was close to his father had murdered his father, murdered his brother. And so he's in that sort of circle of trust, you might say, or whatever it is. But there's a mirror there that, look, if we're going to open our hearts up to people, there's an element of risk that's there. And what's that risk? In order to have that relationship, we're going to end up going through moments of sadness, 
but there's also moments of risk because the people that are closest to us could very easily just stab us in the back. It said, I had not been sad in his presence. A lot of times when people see this, they just sort of think of it as an ego trip that the king has, that, you know, everyone has to be smiley, smiley, smiley in front of the king. Well, what's going on there is it's saying, if you're sad in the presence of the king, what's being said or communicated is, there is something in my life that is more important than the king. Because if the king is the most important thing in my life, then Nothing should bring me sadness except for the king himself. And so if there's something else bringing me sadness, I'm into the presence of the king. What's being said there is there's something in my life that is of such importance that I can't be happy with the king. And it's not an ego thing. If you look at it in terms of the captain, the guard, there was something that was more important in his life that allowed him to murder the king. It's a risk that's rising up that's there. So it's not just an ego trip. There's something very practical here because it's, it's talking about our loyalties. And so when it says that he had never been sad before the king, it's because Nehemiah was conscious of this and not just that he was conscious of it in a sense of he didn't care about it, but for whatever reason, whether he really cared about it or not, he was making it clear up to this point with the king that the king was the most important thing in his life, or maybe not the most important thing in his life, but the king was central to his service. He was taking his job seriously to the king and communicating to the king that he had the king's back, that something wasn't going to come up that was going to cause him to stab the king in the back. He, he was honoring the trust that the king had for him. And he was doing his best to communicate that trust back to the king by, it wasn't that he had never had sadness, but he was putting it off in service to the king. And that was part of communicating that to the king. So these are important things. They're not just peripheral issues. Nehemiah is saying, I, I had always communicated to the king that I was putting him first on things especially in my service when I'm there in his presence. And so it says, and the king said to me, wait, why is your face sad? Though you're not sick. The king notices. Of course the king notices. He could easily be stabbed in the back like his father, like his brother. He's aware of the risk. He takes stock of the risk. He has trust for Nehemiah. This hasn't come up before. And the king inquires. And he says, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. And when Nehemiah heard that, it says, uh, then I was very much afraid. <laughs> yeah. But what is that fear? It's, we don't really know what that fear is. If you're looking at it from the perspective of him being the cupbearer of the king, from the history of who, what the king had suffered, that betrayal of those that he trusted that were close to him, in the history of pain that the king had, 
there was something to fear that the king might lash out at him. And when we look at the history of our pain, yeah, that governs uh, an action or an expectation that is very real. But that's not necessarily what Nehemiah is talking about here, because there's, there's other fears that we have, and there's other things going on than just the history of pain that's here. Sometimes we get afraid when we, not necessarily because of the risk to our life or the risk of something happening, but we just want something to happen so badly. We care about someone so much. We just want something to happen. And oftentimes as we start to see it, like hope start to shine down and this possibility that there might be change happening. When someone's suffered oppressed as Nehemiah, as his people have, when someone suffered, even as the king has, in terms of murdering of his father, his brother, when we look at that, that pain part, when we look at there, there's hope for something beyond that, when that hope starts to break out, it is very normal for us to get very afraid because we start feeling like, I don't want to get my hopes up because in my experience, every time I do, the rug gets pulled out from under me. This just isn't going to happen. It's this fear that comes up of, I'm hoping that this happens. It's looking like it's starting to happen, but because of all the pain in my life, I'm afraid it's just not going to happen. That fear, there, there's always a mix of fears in our life. There's the fear of, I might just get stabbed in the back. There's that fear. Something bad's going to happen to me. There's that fear. But it's all mixed in with, and what you see here is pushing us to, what about this other fear of hope? You know, we can go down this road and just think about things in terms of defensiveness, pulling away defending ourselves, not trusting anybody, the king would be all alone in that room then. You can't live that way. We're required. We must trust in someone. But as we do, it brings us into this other fear of, well, what if this doesn't work out? You know, what if I let go of this way of thinking? What if I grab a hold of the hope of something changing, of things heading in a good direction, there's that fear that it may not work out. And it seems that that's what he's pointing to because he responds. He says, I was very much afraid. And then immediately from that fear, he just tells the king his plan. You know, he, he basically says, look, my people need help. I want to be able to rebuild this wall. I want to be able to protect them. He talks about the pain that he's going through. He's open. He shares his pain. It's a scary moment when you open up and you tell someone about the pain in your life. Will they care about you or not? Now, this is just amplified in his case, because if the king doesn't care about it, the king's going to kill him. But if the king does care about it, then a host of opportunities opens up. See, when we open up our heart, when we share our pain with people, that's not necessarily the end of things. That's oftentimes the beginning of things. 
And it's a scary thing to open up and share our pain because if the person doesn't respond to it, if the person's heart doesn't connect to it, then it's just more and more pain on top of it. It's rejection. But there's a hope there that maybe something will start and move in a good direction. That's what you see happening here. And he tells them his pain. And then the king responds. And to me, this is miracle after miracle. A guy like this, if you look at that story of 300, this guy would not, doesn't have a soft bone in his body. To have his heart connect to Nehemiah's pain is remarkable. He says, then the king says to me, what would you request? Wow. The king's heart is there with him. And it's at that moment that it says, Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heavens. The moment of prayer wasn't at the fear part. He was probably praying. But the prayer that he wants us to think about, the prayer that he wants to talk about, the prayer that he wants to focus on is the prayer that comes at this moment when the king's heart does not reject his pain, when the king's heart embraces his pain and says, what can I do to help? How can I join with you in this? What is your request? And when you think about that in life, you know, we sometimes even from a little kid, we think, well, what would I do if I had one wish? I had one wish. I overheard a conversation with my kids one time. Uh, they asked Moses, what would you wish for if you had one wish? And Moses immediately responds, I'd wish for 10 more wishes. <laughs> That's pretty good. If we have one wish, let's wish for unlimited wishes. That would be the best, right? They always say, well, you can't do that. Okay, well, then I'm going to have to think about it. We have one request. With the king, Nehemiah only has one request. He's not going to be able to continue down this line and just milking it with the king forever. This is not going to happen. But he's blessed with one request, this moment, this opening with the king. But do you see what Nehemiah does? At this opening, he sees this isn't really an opening between me and the king. This is evidence of this opening between me and the king. It's such a miraculous thing that the king's heart would open up to him and say this to him, that he knows this is something God is doing. And what's the wonderful thing about it now being directed towards God? Because we do have a million wishes with God. There is no limit to how many times we can come before God. God is happy. He's pleased with us coming to him over and over and over again for all sorts of things. God loves us and cares for us. God isn't like a, a king. He's like a mother, a father who patterns his whole life to caring for us. We might say, what, what would I do if Bill Gates or what would I do if this person or that person gave me one wish? Who cares about that? 
What would I do of God if I stood before God and I had the opportunity to talk? We had that opportunity. And if there is any other opportunity with anyone else, we should see it in the light that Nehemiah sees it, which is, this is America. God might be doing something here. Let's start talking to God about this, because I can talk to God a million times about this. There's something there that the, it says, verse 5, if it pleased the king. And then it says, it did please the king. And then he starts it off saying again, if it pleased the king. That word please, it just means, does it feel good? He's wondering, does this, as I'm talking and I'm sharing this plan with the king, is the king feeling anything? Is he feeling good about this? Or is he feeling starting to feel angry about it? You know, he's trying to gauge that in the relationship. And you know how that goes. If you start opening up to people, you're looking for some sort of gauge to how are they receiving this? I mean, as we start talking through some plans, maybe on how to address that, they say, we're going to come together with you. How are you feeling about this? Does this feel good or not? Now, oftentimes in life, we think, well, what would I do if I had a wish? If we had a wish, what we're really talking about is what is it that's going to feel good to us, right? Why would you wish for something that's going to feel bad? Now, we may think, I wish that I would just have the endurance to be this athlete, and I know that this is... It's still just talking about what feels good. What we're really talking about here now is you hear that saying, if it feels good, do it. Well, that's absolutely true. And yet, there's a condemnation of that. What is that condemnation? That oftentimes we'll do things that feel good in this instance, but then in a little bit, it'll just start feeling bad. And so we know that there's this, there's this sort of deception in life where we're drawn to some things that just feel really good. But we also know that that that's a, like a deceptive force that grabs a hold of us to imprison us, that it takes away our freedom that this might feel really good right now, but it leaves us in this situation of desperation. It leaves us with a loss of freedom. It leaves us with damaged relationships. And so we know that. But it's not that we don't pursue something that feels good. It's just examine what it is that We have opportunity. We have as much opportunity as Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah was placed in the presence of the king. But even then, in other words, there could be no placement in earthly placement better than the placement that Nehemiah had. But what Nehemiah had was dwarfed in Nehemiah's mind to the presence of the king in heaven. And we all have that. But let's think about that. What is it that we really want? And there's a path that God is saying, that God is telling us about here. It's like the path that I'm leading you down. You may not even really know what to ask at this point. But the path that I'm leading down begins with me opening our heart up, caring about someone, 
not just me, 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 but caring about someone. What do I want? I want someone to love me and I want to love someone. And where that's heading at, why do we want that? Because that feels good. But what about the risk? That may not last. That's what he's getting at here. The king who has everything, has every opportunity, who has all the money, all the power, he feels this path that God is leading him down and the path that God has for him feels good to him. The path that God has for us, it's going to feel better than having all the money in the world. It will feel better than having all the power in the world. That's not to say power, money, these things, it doesn't feel good. But what is the good feeling that we want? We want something that really feels good. And the path that God has, even though it starts with sorrow, he's bringing us out of that desert of sorrow into something that feels really good. But what is the hope of that? And here's the hope. Nehemiah says, and the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. That word good, it's, it's the same meaning as these other words that have been using. Does it please the king? Yes, it pleased the king. Does it please the king? What he's saying is, is that good feeling that Nehemiah is feeling about this, that good feeling that the king is feeling about that, the reason why they're feeling that is because God is feeling good about this. That, that good feeling is coming from God himself down because God has an open hand. That's what that word is. It's not just a hand, it's an open hand. In other words, God's just there. It's there for our taking. He's not, when we come to God, we can come a million times and God's hand is always open to us. That's what they're starting to see. Now, why is that important? Because what do we want in life? Well, we want to feel good. Well, what's going to make us feel good? Don't be deceived. We know, everybody knows that it's not just about having a bunch of money. It's not just about having opportunity. It's not just about never being sad. It's about a connection to people. And God is opening those things up. He's softening our hearts so that we can have it. But what assurance, what do we want? We want something that feels good, that's going to last. And what God is saying is, the path that I'm leading you down is a feeling of good that is going to last for all of eternity. I guarantee that. That's what we celebrated on Easter. It was the fulfillment of that promise. It was God raising Jesus from the dead and giving him life and giving him back to people that loved him and cared for him. If a king on earth wants to see something done, there's power and might to see it happen. But if God in heaven, the king in heaven, if Jesus, the king in heaven, is securing what feels good to us, is leading us down that path of what feels good to us, that's what we should be wishing for. Why? Because it's ethically better. We're going to be a good person. No, none of these people are good people. It has nothing to do with that. 
It's that they are choosing a path that feels good. It starts with sorrow, but it feels good. That is secured by the fact that God is happy that they're involved. You know, God could have made the king do this. He could have forced the king to do this. But he doesn't force the king to do this. The king's not a good person, but he still doesn't railroad over the king. He enables the king. He softens the king's heart so that the king has a choice. And the king said yes to that choice. And what was the yes that the king said? He's saying yes to that moment when his heart is softened to Nehemiah and to this pain of Nehemiah's people. And as he embraces that, it feels good as he starts walking down this path. And so God had worked it out, not so the king is forced to do it, but that the king enjoys it, that it feels good to the king to do it. That's what gives us the assurance, because God could force us to do everything that he wants us to do. If God wants me to go to church, he could force me to go to church. He could force me to do this. He could force me to do that. God's not forcing us to do anything. He's waiting. He's softening our heart so that we can take joy in the path that he's walking down. And what's the path that he's walking down? The path is defined by the fact that he came down. It's defined by Jesus. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, it's God saying, I'm coming down because I love being with you. I want to be with you. I take joy. It makes me feel good to be with you, which is why it's not a one-time request to God, because God always enjoys us coming into our presence. God enjoys every request that we put before him. God understands our pain. He came down and lived our pain for us. And the hope of the resurrection is the hope that no matter how bad things get, God can make it last forever. Nehemiah is encouraging us. Think about it. What do we really want? Think about it. We know that there's some problems with just wanting money. We know there's some problems with just wanting power. Think about it. What do we really want? Doesn't it have to? If it really wants to feel good, doesn't it have to involve something with other people? Something other than just me, 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 me? And as we walk down that path, God gives us that confirmation of this feels good. You know, on Easter, we've been talking about Easter. I talked to multiple people on Easter who just expressed the same thing in different ways. They just said, hey, this just feels really good. I don't know what it is. If it's, I don't know if it is it the music, is it the people getting back? There was just this sense of this just felt good. And everyone just sort of felt like, well, I don't know what this is tied to, but I, it feels good. And I want more of this in my life. God gives us the path. He opens our heart up. He confirms it. But as we see here at the end, the only thing that's required is we really need to say yes to it. And what does that yes look like? It says here at the end, when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official uh, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare. And again, that welfare is the same definition that we've been looking at, uh, that, that, someone, that it feels good to someone to help these people. 
they're saying it angers us that it feels good to these people to help these people because it doesn't feel good to us to help them. It feels bad to know that that's happening. It's displeasing. In other words, it doesn't feel good. It feels horrible to them. See, that's what's laid before us here. And we don't think about that when we think about saying yes to Jesus and saying yes to the gospel, saying yes to what the Bible has to say. Because we just think of Jesus, the Bible, baptism, church, we've got all these labels, and we've just totally corrupted all those labels and just made them filled with evil feelings that, that people have towards them. But look past all the labels. What is it that's really being talked about here? It's the desire that God has to be with us and the joy that God has in being with us and leading us down a path where we can have that. That's what's being talked about here. It's not a religious thing. It's that. And we, we know that that's what do we want out of life. It has to involve, there's a path that involves connecting with other people. That path oftentimes involves some sorrow. But there's hope. God gives us hope that it can end well, that it can end in joy. It can end in us feeling good. And he's securing that by saying, I'm connected to that. I'm coming down. And now I'm a part of this whole process. It's not just you guys down here and me up here. I'm a part of it. And so my strength and who I am as king, who I am as creator is now securing that because I'm on board with this. And the only requirement, this is, it's not be a good person. Everyone else, that's the only difference with Jesus. Jesus isn't saying that. He's just saying, if this is what you want, you feel your heart softening, you'd like to go down that road, but you're afraid, but I'm going to give you encouragement. Let's go down that road together. If you're willing to say yes to that, then that's, that's all that I care about. All my strength will secure it. The only thing that you have to do is say yes. And that's what a come to Jesus moment is. It's not come to some sort of ethical standard. It's come to that moment of saying, God, man, I, I want to feel good. And I want it to be these relationships. But I, what hope do I, the only hope I have is you, if you'll secure, if you'll bring me there, I'm going to say yes to it. Now, the problem is, is we don't always say yes to that. We oftentimes, even if we do say yes with our words, we haven't said yes with our actions. What are the actions? The actions are not ethical actions. The actions are to say, I'm not going to go down all these other roads. These two guys, it didn't feel good. The good feeling was there. The king felt good. Nehemiah felt good. God felt good. I'm, as we'll see when we read it, the other people felt good, but these guys didn't feel good. Why is it that they didn't feel good? Well, part of the reason why is because everything God was doing to save them, he was saving them from these two guys. But he's not just saving them from these two guys. He's saving us from what these two guys are saying yes to instead of saying yes to God. And what is that? It's, I got to say yes to, look, I'm just not going to seek a plan. 
what is my request? My request is be rich. That's saying no to God. Well, why is that saying no? Because that doesn't involve any, well, I'm going to become rich because I'm going to help this person. You know, then let's just say, you don't have to lay out the whole process. Just say, I care about people and I want to be able to help. God has a plan. Say yes then. But what they're saying no to is they're not saying no to God's plan. They're saying no to the king's plan. And we'll see at the end that they say, well, actually, you're not really following the king. I'm following the king. They, they don't even, maybe they realize it, maybe they don't. They do realize it because the king has sent his guards with Nehemiah. They know what the king has said. The king has sent letters with Nehemiah. It's just rhetoric that they're throwing out. And maybe the simplest way to say where they're at is they want it to be about them. If we want it to just be about me, then this path of it being about someone else isn't going to feel good. It's just a basic thing. If I want life to just be about me, 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 me. If every time I come into a situation, my thought is, how does this affect me? You know, am I being included? Am I being left out? Me, me, me. If I'm just going to think about me, then of course I'm not going to take joy in something good happening to someone else. How can I? I'm just thinking about me. Saying yes to Jesus, when it says in the Bible, pick up your cross and, and daily, he's talking about Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down their life for their friend. That's what it requires. We really need to just say no to me, 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 me. If we want to walk down the path that involves love, love for someone other than ourselves, have an interaction with people where I care about you, you care about me. We have to lay down the me part. And that's not an ethic. It's just that's the nature of a yes or no. You're choosing yes to this, no to this. Or yes to this and no to that. There's no combining those things. We keep thinking, I can say yes to me, 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 me. And at the same time say, oh, I love you. You, can. you can't do that. It's a choice. And that's the choice that Jesus is trying to bring out. There's no gray area there. Now we struggle with it. We go back and forth. That's okay. God knows that. We're going to go back and forth. But just know this. God's always going to be bringing us from here to here. He's going to be softening our heart to bring us from here. He's going to be giving us opportunities with people to move us from here to here. And insofar as we're willing to say yes to God constantly moving us back, the moving back will feel good. But insofar as we're digging in our heels as God starts to pull us this way, if we've dug in our heels here, it's going to feel a tearing. It is not going to feel good. And we're going to be angry. And we're going to feel frustrated all the time. Why? They think, well, because I'm fighting with him. No, because we're going to realize you're not fighting Nehemiah. Well, we're stronger than Nehemiah. We should. Why is it that this can It doesn't matter if you're stronger than Nehemiah. You're not stronger than the king. 
and you're certainly not stronger than the king in heaven. A lot of the frustration that we feel in life, some of it is just tied to sadness, but God's bringing us this way. But if we dig in our heels over here and we just are going to say, me, 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 there's going to be a different type of frustration that isn't going to end in joy. It's going to end in frustration. The path that God has for us is to connect with each other, to connect with him, to move forward, to embrace each other by embracing our sorrow, embracing our pain. But God has placed us. God has given us. God has a plan. And as we grab a hold of that plan, he's bringing us through that wilderness of sadness and it's scary because we keep losing hope and saying, God, have you just brought us out here to kill us? No, he's bringing us through together. He's standing with us. And he's bringing us into a place that it does feel good, but it's a feel good that is secured by the presence of God and the promise of God to last through all of eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for all that you do for us. Lord, we just take all of our pain and we put it out to you. We take all the pain that those that we love and care about that you've put us into contact with, the people we pass by every day, we put that pain before you and lead us through this sort of valley, this sort of wilderness of pain and sadness. Bring us to that place, Lord, where we can just feel good being together, feel good being with you. And we know that that will come in heaven. We know that that will come in eternity. But we pray that you give us a taste of it right now. Give us encouragement, Lord, that this is where you're leading us. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.